This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. In Bone Canyon, prolific author and television producer-writer Lee Goldberg's second book in his Eve Ronin series, charred bones found in the aftermath of a devastating Santa Monica Mountains fire embroils his protagonist in a conspiracy that puts her hard-fought position on the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department in jeopardy, not to mention her life. Lee and I discuss how he approaches the research for his books, why he believes that making life for Eve a rookie cop complicated and messy will make her a more satisfying heroine, and the most important thing he feels every author should do to be successful in their careers. Hey, I just want to tell you, I loved Bone Canyon. Oh, thank you. Eve, she's solid, man. I mean, she is so solid. And when I was reading it, we had been down in Malibu right before the fire. Uh huh. And I thought, he took this from the fire. No, I, I live in Calabasas and I wrote about the fire and it was like a year or so before the Woolsey fire. And as fate would have it, when we were evacuated from our house because fire was licking our back fence, I had to evacuate to Santa Clarita to my sister's house. And I was proofing the galley for Lost Hills, oh, proofing wow. the Woolsey fire scenes and seeing on TV that what I wrote was absolutely accurate about where the way the fire was going to go. And it was natural to have the second book pick up in the aftermath of the fire. Did it handicap you at all not to have read the first book or does the second book stand on its own? Uh, the second book stood on its own. And it's so yeah. funny. After I read it, obviously, then I wanted to read the first book. Uh -huh. I love the way that you had her both love and hate the fact that she had to use media uh -huh. to, to get noticed in her own department. I mean, here she is trying to make her way, trying to get onto the homicide division of the L.A. Sheriff's Department and her specific precinct. And she had to do something she hated. And now she's kind of living with the aftermath of that. And I, I like also that she she's not honest with herself. She thinks she's not leveraging this. She thinks she's not savvy about politics and the media, when in fact she's doing it. And, and many of her critics are absolutely right about the mercenary way in which she's using the media to her own advantage. But she won't even admit that to herself. And that's one of the things that draws me to her character, that she's not perfect, doesn't have a clear understanding of herself, doesn't even have a clear understanding of her own job. She she has an innate skill, but hasn't quite mastered how to use it. And that makes the character, I think, more interesting for me as a writer and hopefully more interesting for the reader. I didn't want a hero who is self-confident, proven, but misunderstood by his superiors. I'm so tired of that cliche. I want a, a character who isn't a deductive genius, a brilliant criminalist, who has a, a natural talent but hasn't really marshaled it yet. So she makes some huge mistakes along the way. Right. And learns from those mistakes. That makes the character interesting to me. Plus, having her young and not really deserving her job and having to prove herself to others and to herself all the time makes for more conflict, makes it easier for me to come up with stories, makes it more engaging for me as a writer to be involved with the character. I think. It gives me a lot more ground to cover if I'm lucky enough to have future novels. So I know there's a third novel. It's coming out in November of 2021. It's called Gated Prey. But I don't know yet whether there's a fourth novel or a fifth. We'll have to wait and see. She's a very fertile character. I love the fact that her family is so torn. Uh, she's got, you know, parents, you know, a, a wannabe actress mother who, you know, was at the peripheral, you know, decades ago. She's got a father who, you know, was once a somebody in the industry. Yep and is seeing her as his next meal ticket to the industry. And I wanted to, you know, you've done so many 
shows and so many um, police procedurals as well, both as TV shows as well as, you know, in books. Is that the norm? I mean, like, does every cop want to have their story on television or? No. <laughs> good, no. good. No. no, the reason I did this was because her career is, is propelled by, by media. It's because her video went viral of her face planting a Hollywood star who was beating his girlfriend. You know, she arrested this guy off duty and she leveraged that popularity into a, a promotion she didn't deserve at a time when the sheriff's department was facing all kinds of scandals and needed some good news. But Los Angeles is a media city. It's where dreams are made. And I'm not just saying we have sound stages and movie studios here. All of Los Angeles is a Hollywood backlot. There are so few streets that haven't appeared in cop shows and movies. And so we're all sort of living in this fantasy land. Where we live is also a backdrop for fiction. I think having Eve be aware of that, but also having Eve confronting the media version of herself with who she has to be and what she's trying to strive for also gives you conflict. But also, it seems like everybody in L.A. in some way is connected to the entertainment industry. We're a company town. It's inevitable. Be that way if you lived in Longview, Washington, everyone be connected to the logging mill. If you lived in Detroit, you'd be connected to the auto industry. It's just the way it is. And I think we have to deal with that reality. And the characters of Eve's parents are loosely based on my own parents. My mother was a, a journalist. She was a feature writer and gossip columnist for newspapers in Northern California, and then the Palm Springs Desert Sun. And she was always jealous of my career and my brother's career. You know, couldn't understand why she wasn't on the New York Times bestseller list, or when I was writing and producing TV shows, why I wouldn't give her a script. She just didn't get it. And my father, when I was growing up, was a celebrity. He was an anchor man on KPIX in San Francisco, and I saw him every night on the 6 and 11 o'clock news. But then he got old and made some bad choices, and he wasn't a celebrity anymore. But he still carried himself like he was one. I mean, he, he always walked around talking like this. Hi, how are you doing? If you're at dinner, would you please pass the salt? You know, he, he always talked as if he was on camera, <laughs> right to his dying day. You could, you could confront him and say, Dad, would you just talk like a normal person? I am talking like a normal person. <laughs> and I, I discovered, this is an offshoot, but I discovered that all retired TV anchor people are like that. Remember um, Kelly Lang from uh, KNBC here? Yes, she became yes. a mystery novelist. And when she was at conferences, she was like, I'm Kelly Lang talking mysteries and left coast crime in El Paso, Texas. Like, Kelly, there's no camera on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> They're all that way. But so I, I, I mind some of my own experience. And also my mom was a single mother raising four kids. I was the oldest. And in some ways, Eve is me. I think Eve is looking for control over an uncontrollable world, control over uncontrollable chaos by becoming a cop. She's trying to maintain the order in her life she wasn't able to maintain during the tumultuous years that she was growing up. Right. And this long-winded answer I'm giving you, it was all reaction to, I love police procedurals. I devour them. I love Michael Conley. I love Ian Rankin. I love Stephen Booth. I love so Michael, Mark Billington, all, all, these, all these great procedural writers. But I am tired of the lone wolf cop, usually a middle-aged man with a dark secret. His family was murdered by a serial killer, or he's got you know, PTSD from the war, or he's an alcoholic, or his left testicle was shot off, or whatever. They're always like carrying this. They have no family. Um, everyone hates them. Only they know how great they are. And I, I'm just, I'm tired of that. First of all, you give her such a, a brothy stew 
as part of her life. You've got mm -hmm. these wonderful siblings, both of them that seem a little bit more grounded than she is. Obviously, she was the oldest, so she took a lot of the hits when it came to the parenting yeah. issues. And uh, you also have this wonderful partner of hers. And I was, I was, you know, when, when Duncan was about to be, you know, like retired, quote unquote, I won't give away the ending. I won't give away anything, but I will have to say that I love how you've set him up to stay in her world mm -hmm. because it's almost like it could only happen in Hollywood, right? <laughs> well, it's weird. The, the books all fall within days of each other. I mean, book number two takes place a couple weeks after book number one. Book number three takes place a couple weeks after book number two, because I don't want Eve to mature too fast, but also because I don't want Duncan to retire. You know, I'm just, <laughs> I, I had planned for him to not be in book number three as her partner, but the response I've gotten from readers and critics to his character, I have a lot of pressure to keep him in her life. It's funny because the character on paper comes across as an instant cliche. And Duncan knows that. Oh, I'm the fat old detective on his way out about to retire i'm i'm definitely going to get shot <laughs> i'm definitely going to be you know, killed and but I, i've gone against that cliche wherever i possibly can and while i often play him for laughs i also make sure to show he knows exactly what he's doing that he's self-effacing that there's a reason he's been in this job for so long but at the same time i don't want it to be a cliche so i think in book number one or book number two i can't remember which one he says this he says, I've been married for 30 years and I have two kids and my kids don't hate me and my wife loves me. And that's my greatest accomplishment. Not what wow. I've done on the on the police force that he under he's able to balance a personal life with a professional life that he sees both sides and and works as hard at keeping his marriage as he does at solving cases. So he offers some very sage advice to Eve along the way about trying to have a life while also being a cop. And I think through his gentle humor, he's able to make points across to Eve without making a sledgehammer. And when push comes to shove, he can be surprising. I don't want to give away too much, but there's an interrogation sequence in book number two, where, where in Bone Canyon, where I think readers will be shocked by what an asshole Duncan can be. Um, and in book number three, uh, I think readers will be surprised that he can handle himself with a, in, in a violent situation. I think Going against the cliche wherever I possibly can is what's going to keep the books fresh, keep the readers engaged, and keep me engaged. Yeah, I agree. You've got every character in that book who's, I'm guessing, going to be a part of her whole series. Mm -hmm. You give them a little bit of redemption, even if there's somebody she hates. Yeah. And I love that because otherwise they're just cardboard or they're just, you know, a demon. I got great advice early in my career from Stephen J. Cannell from the Rockford Files and A-Team and Wise Guy. He also wrote novels. He was sort of a mentor to me. And he said, the key to writing a good villain is they aren't villains. They don't wake up in the morning and go, Whoa, I want to be evil. No, they have the same desires we do. They want to be loved. They want their kids to have a better life than they do. They, they worry about the mortgage. They take baths. They go to the bathroom. They, they think they're good people who are just doing what they have to do to provide for themselves and their families. In their case, it happens to be violence or you know crime, but they don't wake up each morning saying, "What evil thing can I do?" And they've always got something going on. They're they're not just about the one crime the hero is investigating. They have lives and commitments and responsibilities outside of whatever it is, whatever the case is that the um, 
the hero is investigating. But that also goes towards supporting characters. What are they doing? What are, what, are, what are their goals? What are their lives? What are they about? So even the characters that Eve doesn't like think they're the hero of their own story. And they have they can be good and they can be bad. They, they can have uh, do really terrible things, but also really wonderful things. We aren't black and white characters, all of us. I mean, we all have things about ourselves that aren't wonderful, that we're sh not necessarily ashamed of, but we all do dumb things. And maybe we do selfish things. And I try to do that with Eve. Eve comes across to a lot of people as abrasive, pain in the ass, self-centered, attention hog. You know, and, uh, and to some degree she is, even if she doesn't recognize it. And I think that makes, again, for a more interesting story and a more interesting character. I, I don't like many of the books that I read where the author idealizes and hero worships their protagonist. I just think that makes it dull. At the same time, I love I love the Reacher books because there is a certain pleasure in in a perfect hero who's never, you know, never overwhelmed by anything. But I, I think in general, I try to stay away from that. I like to have characters who have uh, vulnerabilities. I agree. Again, you've built this whole world around her, which is very needy. It's it's not stark. It's not thin. You feel like, oh, wow, where's the next one? I mean, it's always great when you can discover a writer whose stuff you actually can stick with. And she is definitely a character that I feel people are going to want to hang in there with. The fact that she isn't perfect, the fact that she's um, a rookie, I think that has a whole different, like you say, perspective on the whole police universe. We're seeing it through her eyes. Her eyes are wonderful. They're, they're crystal clear, but they're not. They're cloudy. Uh, so we've got a lot happening with her. And everybody in, around her, like you say, is a rainbow. They're a, a spectrum of colors. It's not just black and white. I was real pleased with sort of the angle that you took with her mother. I hated her the minute I, I met her. And then you see a different side of her and you see there's a bit of mothering with her as well which is always, you know, wonderful to say, oh, this person isn't just going to be who they're written on the page for the first two lines, or you're not just seeing them through Eve's eyes. Yeah. I could tell that you dug deep for well, that. Well, rarely in these kinds of books does the hero have a family. And if he or she does have a family, they're contrived. You know, ridiculous situations. You know, my brother was a serial killer. Or, you know, I, I have my daughter because my, my ex-wife was murdered by, you know, cross-dressing serial killer psychic or whatever it's just it's always just really over the top stuff even with if with with monk a tv show i worked on a series of books i wrote i wanted to ground her in a real recognizable domesticity her brother cleans pools and married young um her sister is a nurse you know she has a mother in her life and 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 her mother is very much in her life and it's a a loving but also anxious relationship and her father is on the periphery of her life but it's it's a life that I think readers can relate to. So maybe they can't relate to Eve as a cop, but they can relate to her domestic situation and what her relationship is like, like with her mother. And I think that humanizes her and makes readers invest themselves more in the story than they will in some of these other police procedural characters. And I say this to someone who loves those characters, but at the same time, when I started to write a police procedural, I asked myself, what could I do that's different? You know, that that Colin Dexter didn't do with Morris, that Joseph Wamba didn't do with his characters, that Michael Conley hasn't done with his. How could I show Los Angeles in a way that hasn't been done to death? Because Raymond Chandler and Joseph Wamba and Robert Crace and Michael Conley and so many other authors have walked these streets. What can I do different? I found a corner of Los Angeles that hasn't been written about. 
and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department hasn't really been written about. So that gave me a fresh canvas. That doesn't mean Eve is not leaving the jurisdiction of Lost Hills, which is Calabasas, Malibu, the Santa Monica Mountains, Agoura. Which we all love. you got to keep her in there, quite frankly. Oh, she is. But obviously, it's not a hermetically sealed environment. So she does get out to Santa Monica, Hollywood, Santa Barbara, other places in Southern California to investigate her cases. But she is working in something of an island, something of a dome that captures almost all the facets of life in Los Angeles. Movie production, hippy-dippy lifestyle, the insanely rich, um, the rural. It's everything in Southern California is in Lost Hills jurisdiction, which is what makes it so fascinating to me. I, I also love that um, you took a period of time. To me, I keep going back to the fire because I think it's spectacular, having seen the devastation of yeah. what it had done, and also watching on television how quickly it spread. Here you've got a scenario, and I want to ask you how the plot came to you, about how they found the bones or a bone of a body. And the whole police procedural for that was so, you opened it up to readers. And I, I love that you could do that. Tell me how that plot came to you. The plot came to me from a small item, I believe it was in the Los Angeles Times, or it may even have been the Acorn, our local uh, newspaper here in Calabasas. After the fire, all the, all the growth was burned off the hillsides. And it was dense, dense growth. And there are people who came back to their homes after the evacuation and found bones in their backyard, bones that had tumbled down the hillsides when the shrubbery burned away. And you know, the police looked into it. And in, in many cases, it turned out to be gang members that had been murdered by rival gangs and their bodies tossed in the canyons. The bodies got caught in the shrubbery and sat there for years unnoticed until it all burned away and, the, and the, the bones tumbled. But all sorts of mysteries got solved after the fire. There was a couple who were on their way back from LAX from a flight and, a, and they drove their car home and never got home. And their car was found at the bottom of the ravine with them dead in it. There was a woman who disappeared from the uh, Los Angeles County Museum of Art on Wilshire Boulevard, an Alzheimer's woman who, while her husband was in the bathroom, she wandered away years ago. She was found in a canyon even plane wreckage was found. They were trying to figure out if the plane wreckage was left over from a movie shoot or an actual aircraft that no one knew about crashing. So it was amazing all the secrets that were revealed by the canyons being burned clear. So it was irresistible to me. So then I started doing a lot of research into forensic anthropology. I interviewed a lot of forensic anthropologists. I read a lot of books on forensic anthropology. And then I pushed all that away because there's a real tendency among authors who do research to show off to prove, look at all the research I did, and stick all sorts of boring exposition and details into their books just to prove, hey, look, I did the research. I'm just looking for the one cool fact, the one tasty detail, the one colorful observation from reality that I can stick in my book that then makes it real. And then the rest just becomes stuff that informs my dialogue or description. So I don't want to hit the reader over the head with, hey, look, I really do know what I'm talking about. I just wanted to come out sort of naturally. And, and I let Eve be the reader. Eve admits that she doesn't know stuff, which is really unusual for a cop. I actually don't know what you just said. She says to the experts, you know, <laughs> please explain that to me. Whereas other cops go, yeah, I got you. I have no clue because I don't want to seem weak or uninformed. So, but I do at the end of the book list all the, all the stuff I read and all the papers I, I read and all the seminars I attended. Um, just so people know I didn't pull this stuff out of the, out of the clear blue sky. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Well, you know, the whole idea of these bodies, just, you know, pieces of these bodies yeah. appearing, and then the forensic detail 
of, you know, I love, I have to say, I do love the fact that you wrote in a great um, love interest for Eve. The fact that he's such a brain and, you know, you called him Indiana Jones a couple of times and I was like, yeah, in in so many ways. (laughs) So in my mind, I saw Richard Dreyfuss from Goodbye Girl or from Jaws. (laughs) <laughs> you know, sort of smart, but lovable and kind of goofy. And Wait a minute. Let me tell you something. You write really good sex scenes, too. I oh. want to say that. <laughs> it's it's right there. It's right there. It's not across the line. It's it's really nice. Uh, yeah, those are, well, there's I a nice thing about writing monk. sex scenes, which is always do it from character. Don't write about the act itself. Write about what the characters are feeling and thinking and what their insecurities are. Um, I had a character in a book called uh, Watch Me Die. And he... Uh, you know, he had a concussion. You know, he was in no position to to make love, and he you know he couldn't get it up. And you know, and then uh, in in a book I had published back in April, uh, Fake Truth, my hero hadn't had sex in like a year, and has opportunity to sleep with this movie star, and yeah, it's premature ejaculation in the first thirty seconds. You know, it, it's like this never happens in the books I write. He he's a writer character. You know, it's it's dealing with with the reality of that stuff, and you know. It, if you make it about character and not about the act, if you're not trying to arouse the reader, you're just trying to bring the reader along in the story and how the sex scene impacts the relationship or what the uh, the character is going through, then it's going to work. I think people get into trouble when they try to write something erotic or try to write something um, that's all about the act and forgets the people who are in it. Then it's just pornography. So that's that's the way. I, and I always try to do it with humor, too. I always try to find some humor in the sex scene. I think that humanizes it um, in general, unless there's a reason to see the sex scene for character or plot. I don't. I'll just have them go to bed and we'll see them the next morning or whatever. <laughs> well, I love the way um, with Eve, you get you had that levity, which I, I tremendously appreciated. And you also had the fact that she had that need for that. Mm-hmm in her life. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you did that. And by the way, the story you were just telling about the character who had sex with a movie star and was premature, shall we say, it was, it's funny because, you know, you made me think, well, he could have been a monk. And I thought, no, don't go there. (laughs) I know my wife, when she read um, the, the book, liked the fact that Eve wasn't secure that her proposition to the to the guy would be accepted you know that it's not like books and stuff that, that she had an insecurity about what whether what she was doing was the right thing and he was insecure too it wasn't some stylized you know movie sort of situation it was sort of you know they had bad breath and you know they were eating and whatever it just it just it, it was a part of life and, and made it not uncomfortable for my wife to read you know, she, she's always afraid whenever i write a sex scene people think that's us oh, <laughs> it's same thing with action scenes when i write an action scene in a book it's all about from the character's point of view it's not about how visual it's going to be and how exciting it'll be for the viewer it's about what is my heroine going through so in book number one my heroine is involved in a big fire and i'm not talking about the enormity of the fire or or the action i'm talking about what she's feeling and doing in the midst of it and i think that's what makes it compelling um, so I think it also looked great on screen if they end up shooting it, but that, that's always the way I approach action and sex in um, in my book. Actually, it's so hard to do these interviews because I wrote Bone Canyon two years ago, you know, something like that. Right. So it's you're trying. To, actually, the book that's fresh in my mind is the one I just turned in. That's you know coming out in the fall. Um, 
But I, I just, I like that character of Richard Dreyfus in those two movies, who's obviously smart, but self-effacing and pudgy and lovable, not movie star handsome. And we haven't seen those kind of characters in books or, or film lately. You're not going to see it in the TV show either. I'm sorry. <laughs> He'll be a hunk. Well, it's interesting. Lost Hills has been optioned for television by a very big uh, studio for a very big network. I have no idea what they're doing. I think the irony that the next Eve Ronan book, which now has a title Gated Prey, coming out next fall, the TV series about her is moving along, that that book could actually come out when potentially there could actually be an Eve Ronan TV series would be really weird. Um, It'd be really weird if I continued to write the books at the same time there's a fictional Eve out there. I could sort of incorporate that into, into my narrative, you know, how she's dealing with the... And Michael Connolly's done that to some degree. In the Lincoln Lawyer, um, the latest Lincoln Lawyer book, he talks about, the character talks about Matthew McConaughey playing him in the movie, which is, uh, <laughs> which, you know, happened. It's, I think it's funny, and it just shows why incorporating Hollywood into my portrayal of Los Angeles makes so much sense. It's it's impossible to separate the two. Well, I um, I could see why she would be a TV show in real life as well as not in real life. I have nothing to do with it, so I mean, I have no, I have no idea what you know what they have in mind or, and the odds of it happening. You know, so many books are optioned and scripts are written that don't get shot, and even when they are shot, they don't get picked up for series. So I'm, I'm pretending as if it doesn't exist. If it happens, I'll be thrilled. If it doesn't happen, I won't be surprised. Well, and I'll be proud of you because you will have known the terms to ask for. <laughs> yeah. going in so if it happens it does happen and it'll well be- I, I do have a tv series on the air that i created i'm not involved in it though which is unusual but i co-created with my good friend robin bernheim mystery 101 which is a series of two-hour mystery movies on the hallmark channel and they've just finished shooting last week movie number six wow so and i i wrote with robin movie number seven so it's that's nice I, again i'm not involved in day-to-day production but it's nice having a tv series on the air I was, you know, reading your bio and your bio is so hysterical. I had to read it out loud to my husband <laughs> because I, I was saying, talk about shoots and ladders, man. This is, this is a guy that's been up and down and up and down and up and down, but he's been sideways too. You know, I mean, I love the fact that you did start out, you know, you wrote a book and then your publisher goes bankrupt. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> if I move my head right now, you can see I have the original painting for my vigilante covers back there. And what it. they did, there's my finger. They would change the bottom to match whatever was in the story and keep the top. They would, so underneath the bottom part of the painting is the scenes from the first three books. This is the fourth one there. So I, I have the original cover painting. This is back before, back when they painted covers for books. That's how old I am. <laughs> but I wrote that book when I was in, um, when I was in college. And I love having that painting because I look at it and remember what all my hopes and dreams were back then and how few of them I've lived up to, but others I've managed to achieve. It's, uh, it's fun to have that there. Again, shoots and ladders. I mean, it's, it's just, that is the industry, the industry you're in, and you're in two different industries at the same time. It's, it's interesting how you pinged and pong back and forth between the two and built the synergy that you have. I think very few authors have done that. I give that advice to all beginning authors. You're a writer first. Writers write. That doesn't mean you just write fiction. I write nonfiction. I write short stories. I write scripts because I want to have a career that sustains me and my family. So there are times when television is where most of my revenue is coming from and most of my attention is spent. And then there are times where most of my revenue is coming from books and TV takes a backseat. But I always have 
the two worlds. Plus, I still write short stories. I have two publishing companies, Brash Books and Cutting Edge Books. So I, I make sure that I have a lot going on. So I always have cash flow. I'm always thinking, if you write for a living, you always have to be thinking, where's your next check coming from? And I'm very aware of all that. And I want to keep myself engaged and always have something going. I know too many authors who, if they don't get another book contract, they're done. You know, they, they haven't thought about a backup plan. They haven't tried to expand their, their situation. My brother Todd is a novelist, short story writer, book reviewer, and he runs the, the graduate creative writing program at UC Riverside. So he, the low residency graduate creative writing program at, at UC Riverside. So he's got teaching income. He's got journalism income. He's got book income. And his books have sold to television and film. So he has the movie option. But like me, his career is sustained because he doesn't put all of his writing emphasis in one form of the media of media and i think that's very important today yeah i mean uh, as they used to say in the back in the day content is king and we are the content creators yeah so why not and uh, you, but you've pretty much done a great job of spreading the cards in your hand in such a wonderful way and you know i i have to tip my hat to you for that because First of all, you're fertile. I mean, you're, you know, you are. I mean, look at, look at the body of your work. I mean, look how much fun your writing is. Your writing, you could have taken any of those and stopped, but instead you, you thought, here's another great character I could write about. Well, I'm also not happy if I'm not writing. I need it for my own psychological well-being, my emotional well-being. I need to be writing. In fact, right now I'm, I'm all freaked out because for the first time in my life, in my life, I think, I shouldn't say my life, in my professional adult life, I don't know what I'm doing next. I don't have a contract for another book. I don't have a contract for a script. Um, I have no obligations at the moment. What am I going to do next? What's my next book? I mean, I won't know if I'm writing a fourth Eve Ronan novel until we see what the sales are like for Bone Canyon and the pre-orders for Gated Prey. So I'm kind of in a weird position for myself. You know, what am I going to do? And I have a novel that's in the back of my mind for a few years, but is it commercial? Is it something I, I want to do? I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a weird position to be in. I'm hoping that whatever you decide to do, that you embrace with the alacrity that you embraced this character. I think she's got legs myself. And I know that you, you've seen that in all of your writing. So I, I don't think you're going to have a problem. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I, I seem secure talking to you, but I'm, I'm riven with insecurities. I'm thinking, well, I'm a fraud. I finally run out of ideas. I've finally been revealed for what I am, a useless hack. I hope they are taking job applications at Arby's and that a free sandwich comes with the deal. Hey, let me tell you something. You found a story from an Acorn newspaper article. <laughs> I don't think you're going to have to worry about where your next story is coming from. The one great advantage writers have is all you need is a blank screen or a blank sheet of paper. You don't need to be hired by anyone. You can just start writing. So for writers, stories are always going to be wanted, even in a recession. People want to escape. So there's always going to be a need for storytellers. Storytelling you know, is never going to be uh, extinct. So you've always got a job. And I've always managed to do well during recessions. And that's also because of diversification. I'm not worried about, okay, I'm not on a TV show. I'm not going to make money. And also today, because of eBooks, you can always self-publish. I mean, I took my out-of-print backlist and put it back into print. And it's making me more money on some of those books than I earned when they were in print. So there's always an option. If I can't, Lost Hills, I wrote on spec. 
true fiction I wrote on spec. I was lucky enough to sell them to a publisher, but if I didn't, I would have self-published them and I would have done fine. Not great, but I would have done fine. And so I always know that's an option for me. And if I have a book I can't sell, I'll self-publish it. I'll make some money off of it somehow. Uh, right. So there's no excuse for a writer during a recession not to be working. You hit it right on the head. You hit it right on the head. I'm kind of glad that you've expressed the fact that, that you're taking a breath and thinking, what am I doing next? Because a lot of authors get to that point and they do freeze and they do feel, I don't know. I don't know if I've got another one in me. You know, that kind of that feeling when you know you've got a bazillion stories in you, it, you just have to clear your mind to find the one that pops up. Well, like tomorrow, if Amazon says you have a contract for a fourth Eve Ronin, I could start writing it by the end of the week because I already know what the fourth Eve Ronin book is going to be. I have a plot in mind for that. And I wrote it down while it was still fresh in my head. So I've got two pages of plot for the next Eve Ronin. And I have no, I'll have no problem coming with Eve Ronin books because now I know who she is. And the stories will always arise from what conflict do I want to put her into. The case kind of comes second. So I'm not worried about, I could write Eve Ronin's no problem for, for years. It's what do I do that I haven't done before? Mm. Like also Amazon can come to me tomorrow and say, we want another Ian Ludlow thriller. I, I've written three of those so far. I don't know if I'll be doing a fourth, but I could do that. I mean, because I know who the character is now. I've written three books of that character. That, that's taking the easy way. Starting from scratch and also deciding, is it going to be a standalone or do I write a book that could be a series of books? The smart thing would be a book, it's a series of books, but should I just write what I feel? I mean, the notion I have in the back of my mind is actually would be kind of scary. It'd be a, a high concept thriller, but is the concept any good? And, and will I find a home for it? It's, it's, it would involve a lot of research. Am I willing to take that leap? So it's, uh, it's a lot to think about. I, I don't know. Lee, I hope you do it because <laughs> I think it might be a whole different venue for you. I don't know. It's scary. Don't but, be scared, man. You're Lee Goldberg. Don't be scared. Oh, I'm scared. scared. I, I live in constant terror. <laughs> I'm assuming right now while we're talking, my wife's having an affair with the pool guy. This is my life. <laughs> You'll find Lee Goldberg's Bone Canyon through Amazon. You can also order it at your favorite local bookstore. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.